Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China. I'm your host, Kaiser Guo. Today, we'll be talking about the trial of Huang Wangyu, one of China's richest men, and what the trial says about wealth, corruption, and the rule of law in China today. Then we'll move on to the topic on everyone's lips in today's China, rising real estate prices and Beijing's efforts to rein them in. With me today at the pop-up Chinese studio in Beijing are regulars Bill Bishop, who's been writing quite a bit about real estate at his blog, Sinicism.com. How are you, Bill? Great. Thanks, Kaiser. Also joining us is Will Moss, the man behind the blog, ImageThief.com. Hi, Kaiser. And uh, we're also joined today again uh, this week by Gotti Epstein, bureau chief for Forbes magazine. Gentlemen, welcome to all of you. Thank you. Let's uh, hop right in here. Huang Guangyu and the curse of the, the Chinese rich. The trial of Huang, who by some counts is China's richest man, began here in Beijing last Thursday, uh, the 22nd of April. The multi-billionaire was detained in November 2008 on suspicion of bribery, insider trading, and a host of other white-collar crimes. Gadi, let's start with you. Who is Huang Guangyu? Superficially, at least, he sounds like a Horatio Alger story, doesn't he? That's right. He, uh, he was born a poor family near, uh, near Shantou in Guangdong. Uh, he was a school dropout, uh, one of four kids. He and his uh, brother started selling you know, miscellaneous electronics at a very early age and eventually built that into Gourmet, the electronics retail giant. He became China's richest man, according to Forbes, in 2006 with a fortune over $6 billion. And, and what is he actually alleged to have done, Bill? Do you, are you familiar with uh, what his actual litany of crimes or alleged I think crimes? what he's been charged with is uh, insider trading, uh, bribery, uh, as well as what looks to be a, a money laundering charge under the guise of illegally operating a business. Yeah, and I guess that up to, uh, He can be sentenced up to 20 years for the three charges. Right. Apparently, he had, what, swapped something like 800 million Hong Kong dollars with the niece of some guy who is known as the gambling king of the high seas. This guy right, this guy Lian Chao. He runs it and who was detained. I don't know, has he been released or not? But yeah, Lian Chao has been detained, right? Um, he, he apparently was quite a big gambler and... Uh, was quite a frequent visitor to the. Is one of the. He runs the biggest gambling boat in in Hong Kong. So Huang Wei was quite a big visitor, uh, customer of his, and apparently I think used his gambling trips to also take a lot of officials with him. And so the and the bribery charge stems from issues around Guomei taxes. Where I mean the Guomei the company has actually been charged with the crime as well. And oh, so okay. that that's related to paying people off to make the problems go away. And what's interesting is actually. Three, I think it was three years ago, Taijing had a long article about Huang Guangyu being investigated and his brother investigated for auto loan fraud. And they, they said he was going to imminently be detained. Mm-hmm. And then mysteriously, that case went away. Yeah, that's strange. I mean, it might have something to do with the bribes that he's alleged to. Right. And, and what's interesting, too, who he bribed were one, I think the highest ranking person, uh, at least who's been charged so far, was the guy who was ranked number 10 in the Ministry of Public Security. That's right. Um, but apparently it's linked people, officials in Guangdong and Zhejiang, 
um, and and several of them are also from Shantou. So it's also into this hometown connection. hometown connection, informal networks. Almost every official I think that's been caught in the dragnet has Guangdong roots, or mm-hmm. they were an official in Guangdong, or. But a lot of them were actually in the white collar crimes unit of the the Ministry of Public Security. Oh, he paid the right people off. Yeah, uh, well, apparently not. Maybe not, <laughs> not not everyone, but at least he, he he found the right target at least at the beginning. And well, what about these insider trading charges? Well, from what I understand anecdotally, that may have been sort of how he was caught. Uh, he was doing share manipulation uh, of two companies that were under his control. And um, I think there was a relatively substantial amount of money involved. That might not have all been all his, but it's sort of unclear. I, not right, all of that I, is. I read somewhere about I, he had set up something like 80 uh, dummy companies. Actually right, just dummy to, accounts. Accounts, and, right, accounts with And it ties in with his brother because they actually have a real estate company on the side. You would know this best, right, from the Forbes list, but almost any of these guys, if you look hard enough, you're going to find something. Guomei itself has been hit pretty hard by this, right? There have been quite a few store closures, and uh, actually their, their stock was suspended from trading. Yeah, but for they raised $700 million from Bain Capital last summer. Yeah, I right. Their stock dove, uh, Huang Guangyu's uh, status as one of China's richest has uh, slipped dramatically. I imagine so. Uh, yeah. He's definitely no longer a billionaire. He, he, he's down to 130th on the uh, We should We shouldn't forget his, his wife actually is charged as well. And his wife ran the finances for Guomei. So and she originally, I think, was at like the... Bank of China, Beijing branch. His older brother has also been indicted, but he's been he's been detained. I'm not sure if he's been brought up on right. charges just yet. Um, Gotti, how high up does this go? We were talking about some people in the Ministry of Public Security. It's already going quite high. You're talking about the head of the Zhejiang Province Commission for Discipline Inspection of the Communist Party, uh, who was also very high up in Guangdong before that. That's It's related to his time in Guangdong. And you have uh, another high up uh, public security official from Guangdong. Uh, you have... Uh, other people who are now or were later in high-ranking positions in Beijing, uh, uh, high court in Guangdong, Supreme Court in Beijing. I mean, it's 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 quite a long list uh, yeah, that have been absolutely, caught. Absolutely, absolutely. You can go as high as uh, is politically feasible. <laughs> <laughs> so, what does this mean for the average person who's watching this? Uh, Will, what's what's your sense of how the Chinese press has been playing this, and uh, what reaction on the street has been to 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 Huang's arrest? I think these kinds of things are always symbolic, and a trial like this cannot not be symbolic. This isn't exclusively a, a, a Chinese thing. You know, big trials of famous people, particularly where corruption is involved, are, are always sensing, sending com- some kind of message to society. As for what the impact is on normal people, I think it's very hard to say. The spin that's given to the trial is going to be the spin the government wants on it. If they want it to be purely commercial, it'll be purely commercial. There's always in any country, particularly a country that's had a fast emerging rich class, there's always going to be a conflicting set of emotions and a touch of that eat the rich uh, mentality. So I do think you might find some sense of, well, he was corrupt, he's getting what's coming to him. But there's so many other things going on. There's so many things going on with the emergence of a wealthy class in China that I don't imagine that the impact from this case alone is going to be huge. And I don't think it's going to have the same kind of impact as some of the high-profile prosecutions of political figures in the last few years has sure. had. Gotti, I mean, I, I'm inclined to think maybe I don't want to make it onto Forbes' rich list anymore. I mean, that was my aspiration for an awfully long time, but they seem to be cursed. Uh, that might be a slight bit of overstatement, but not too far. Uh, the, uh, about a year ago, I wrote a, uh, a column about this novelist, Wang Gong. He, he wrote the book English, th- and he sure. also wrote a novella called The Curse of Forbes, uh, modeled basically after uh, Pan Zhiyin Zhang Xin, 
the uh, chairman and CEO of Soho China, one of the biggest real estate companies in China. And uh, basically, he it's a kind of a critical uh, assessment of the rich. Um, but also, there's a little bit of sympathy in there. He was telling me that he cons- considers the rich a tragic class because not only does everybody hate them, the poor and the middle class, but they also never know when maybe they'll be locked away by the government. There's a point there because a moment ago we were talking about the symbolism of the trial and and how the person on the street felt about this trial. The person on the street is not the target audience of this trial. Other rich people are the target audience of this trial. So the question isn't how Joe Average walking down the sidewalk feels about it. It's how everybody else who's on the rich list feels about it and what they think it means to them. And officials. And officials. We spoke a few minutes ago about the fact that Huang Guangyu had this sort of web of people from Guangdong that he was tied to. And one of the things that sets, I think, the government's nerves tingling a little bit is the sense of the emergence of unofficial webs of influence that compete with the official webs of influence or the webs of influence that are uh, that are manipulated by the political class. And that's a real issue with the rise of wealth in this country. And I think that's one of the messages that comes out of this. Informal webs of influence in China? I know. Imagine Zanning's what up. were the chances of that? <laughs> in, in defense of the Forbes Rich List, I think, though, um, one, the the folks who made their wealth through IT, like Pony Ma from Tencent or William Robin Lee, from, Lee, or, Robin yeah. Lee from Baidu, Charles Chen Jinxiao from 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 Shandai, Charles John from Sohu. Yeah, I think those guys are actually relatively clean. Yeah, yeah. And and one of the things on the rich list, I mean, a lot of the wealth on that list comes from people who have made their fortunes in industries that actually have state-owned competitors. And so they've had to figure how to work within the confines of having a, in a sector with controlled resources or a competitor who's actually well, backed by the government, the whereas IT goods? was wide open. Is that the case with white goods? It's a real estate or? business. It's very much a real estate business. Yeah, so it, Back then when he started, you had it wasn't as wide open with brands. You had a lot of control over the brands and distribution. It's not just about getting rich cleanly, though. It's also what happens once you get very rich. Your behavior, you, you sort of start to act like you're above the law. Possibly. You can. You have that temptation. Huang Gongyu certainly built his network after he became like rich, he was, uh, and he, he may have acted like he was above the law if everything is uh, alleged against him is true. Um, and, and one of my favorite quotes from somebody who's a, a Beijing friend who's been pretty successful was he, he said, you got to remember, no matter how rich you get, at the end of the day, in the eyes of the Chinese government, you're all peasants. Well, you look at people back in 2002, there were a couple like um, – there was like a series of arrests back then. There's Yang Bin, uh, you know, the, the sure. Dutch tulip king who had made the mistake of making an agreement to develop an North Korea, economic zone yeah, in North Korea. Without apparently getting permission, uh, he got arrested. He may have done some other things, but who knows whether he would have been caught or arrested for those things if he hadn't you know, kind of put himself out there in a way the government didn't like. There was the actress, if you can help me for a second, who was arrested for tax evasion back right, here. Uh, Liu, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, her name totally uh, slips my mind. Right. Um, Anyways, they're, they, uh, they like to uh, make these examples, and I think uh, that's why Will is right. In the Huang Guangyu case, you could have, I'm sure you could find a number of people who've done share manipulation and insider trading. To pick one of the richest men in China uh, certainly sends and, a message. And do we know that they un- unraveled this web of corruption by, by figuring out that Huang Guangyu was corrupt, or they actually found something on one of the officials and then followed that trail into Huang Guangyu? Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, he certainly wasn't the first person who was arrested in this whole uh, network. Uh, but this is a case then not of really killing the chicken to scare the monkey, but more of like killing the 800-pound gorilla to scare the other gorillas or to scare the other uh, monkeys. Well, somebody is supposed to be scared. That much is clear. Right, right. 
Um, I, one of the bloggers that I like to read here, this guy named Stan Abrams, who's a, a lawyer, writes a blog, which I'd highly recommend, called China Hearsay. Uh, he had one of the more interesting comments that I, I had read on this. Uh, he was asking about uh, how this trial impacts rule of law in China or perceptions about rule of law. Um, let me just quote from him really quick. He said, whenever there's a high-level case like this, there are possible opportunities to affect rule of law, specifically public perception of the judicial system. There are three options to consider here, he says. One is putting the richest guy in the country on trial will further the concept that no one is above the law. Two, seeing the most successful person in the country taken down will further the cynical notion that corruption is rife and the economic system really doesn't work. Or three, neither. No rule of law implications because there are complicating factors. And Stan actually concludes that the benefits of this are marginal, that cynicism is running at such high levels already that it won't really increase this notion already quite present that everyone is, is already, every rich person is corrupt. Uh, people will see this as kind of selective prosecution. Do you guys have any thoughts on this? Do you, do you agree with Stan? The issue with these kinds of things is the difference between a system that is designed around making examples of people, which is what often happens here, and a system that is designed to be fairly applied. And, and I don't think many people would argue that China has quite got there yet. I contrast it with Singapore, where I lived for almost 10 years before I came to China. Here, it, it becomes quite clear that people are made examples of that. Uh, that Huang Guangyu is prosecuted or Qian Liangyu is prosecuted or we're going to cherry pick these certain people based on the message we want to send, based on their influence, patronage, the the, the degree of, of, of the crime. I said before I contrast this with Singapore. In Singapore, the mentality I think is quite different. There, the mentality that's been built over time by very scrupulous application of the judicial system is, if I do something bad, I will be caught. Places like Singapore and Hong Kong uh, have handled anti-corruption ex ex exceptionally well for East Asia especially. Uh, what are some of the lessons you guys think we can draw uh, here in China from the way, say, for example, that uh, Hong Kong handles uh, well, I'm not sure you can because they're all, what, 6 million people, 8 right. million people. They're very, very they're different. They're like a small district in Beijing. That's yeah, right. different, with many, in many ways, different <laughs> cultural backgrounds. I think the problem with what Will is saying there is that you have a very small political elite, ruling elite in those um, in those, especially in Singapore. And obviously in Hong Kong, it's a slightly different. It's not just a ruling elite. You have um, you have the tycoons as well. But in China, you have, you know, 70 plus million party members. Right. Uh, they all have vested interests and people that are being – that they're protecting or that are protecting them. It makes any prosecution much more complicated. And so that's why people will naturally assume there's a, an element of selective prosecution. Uh, it may be that the overall climate is it's getting tougher to get away with things. But everybody will still think that you can get away with it if you have the right level of protection. That issue, the size issue, is for real, by the way. I think people often have the same sense in the U.S. You know, certain people get lucky. Certain people are singled out and prosecuted. Probably not to the degree that happens here, but it does happen. Again, watch and see how things play out with prosecutions around the financial crisis. Right. I mean, the, the thing about being singled out, though, I mean, the question I have in the Huang Guoyu case is we don't really know the actual genesis of the case. What, what, did someone say, oh, I'm pissed at Guoyu, I'm pissed at Huang let's go get him? Or did something else happen, like they realized that a senior party member was corrupt and then you have some outside businessman who's corrupting the, you know, corrupting the party, quote unquote, right? Right. And, and that reminds me. And then it me, meets uh, Huang Wang Yu, and he just happens to be that person, as opposed to we want to take him down. Same thing with the Rio Tinto case. Were these guys actually targeted, or because it's such a, it was such a sensitive industry for China, so much China was spending so much money that they were investigating the Chinese guys. 
right. the Chinese steel mills, and they come across these these evidence of bribery, the bribes that the Rio Tinto guys are taking, and then they go after Rio Tinto. We don't know. Or were they going after could, Rio Tinto? Right, we don't, we, don't, we don't know. The assumption is, at least in the Rio Tinto case, oh, they targeted Rio Tinto. But we, I mean, the Chinese government, as you know, doesn't have a great PR strategy, and they, and they certainly leave the impression that they targeted them. But we actually don't know that for sure. That was so, Will nodding emphatically. Gotti, you had something? Right, like? well, that's the price they pay for not having a transparent system. Exactly. Is the, yeah. is the question, exactly. Is the thing. And this reminds me a little bit of the Zhou Zhengyi case in uh, 2003, because he sort of was a domino that fell. Uh, he wasn't the first one. Uh, Give was, us a little background. Zhou Zhengyi was this, one, also one of China's richest. He was on the Ford's rich list. <laughs> Again, the uh, He um, was uh, behind a big redevelopment in the center of Shanghai. It was kicking out a bunch of people from their homes. That became a bit of a political uh, controversy. The person who ended up challenging him, a lawyer who ended up challenging him, that ended up in jail. But so in the end did Zhou Zhengyi for unrelated crimes that came out of an investigation that started in Hong Kong. And it's, there's a question, you know, Zhang Zhengyi was, was protected at that time. He was part of the Shanghai uh, faction. And there's a question of whether was there factional politics involved in him? Uh, did he lose protection and thus have to go to jail because Hu Jintao, you know, wanted to, you know, make it, send a message? Or was it just a natural outgrowth of an investigation? That, or he and just became too played. obvious and embarrassing and nobody wants to help him right. anymore. Yeah, the Hong Kong U trial was actually one day. Right. Even well, though apparently they viewed the evidence the day before, so it was at least two days. That's pretty fast for and, and all of the and all of the uh, public seats or tickets to view the proceedings were actually given away before the public got there. There was one Xinhua report. Well, right. I wouldn't call that a public. And as, <laughs> as of this <laughs> taping, we've seen no verdict yet. No, we've seen no verdict. I, I'm not one's not expected for a couple of weeks. I understand. What do you anticipate? What What's the Chinese press saying is a likely outcome of this? What's he going to get? It's up to 20 years, but uh-huh. I, don't, I haven't seen any – have you seen speculation about what he might get? Well, we should start off. It goes without saying he's going to be convicted. Yeah, I don't, I don't <laughs> right. think I mean, much, I think in over 90 percent. There goes my pet in the pool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I think I've seen 15 years. I've seen uh, various estimates. Who knows? Okay, very good. Let's um, move on to our next topic here. Whether they own property or not, there's nothing that people across China are talking about more than real estate prices. Property prices in 70 cities in China rose by a whopping 11.7% just in March. There was record growth of new loans last year, too. Over $1.4 trillion, actually, in 2009 in new real estate-related loans. Uh, People all over China are talking about uh, the phenomenon of house slaves, of people who are actually enslaved to their mortgage, uh, working only to pay off what they owe on their homes. And uh, not long ago, Wojiu, a very popular television show that was actually taken off air but is still being aired on China's major internet video sites, had over 175 million views just on Yoku, uh, which I should add is a company that I consult for. This is a, a major topic. Bears like Jim Chanos and Andy Xie, who was formerly of Morgan Stanley, are putting the scare in a lot of people. Uh, China's talks all, often about shorting China about Dubai times a thousand. And in a Bloomberg commentary uh, written by Xie the other day, he compared these anecdotes that he's heard about maids in Beijing taking time off to go back home and buy real estate. Uh, he compares these to the shoeshine boys whose stock tips supposedly clued in Joseph Kennedy to the eminent crash of 1929. Gotti, let's start with you. Explain in layman's terms. Not oh, that pointy-headed stuff. Yeah, I'll try. Right. Uh, why Beijing is on the horns of a dilemma with this, uh, why they're on the one hand addicted to, to rising prices, and why 
they also face very real dangers from a continuing rise. Right. Well, on, on the first part, there's a very basic uh, need for the rising prices on the part of the government, which is land sales. That's so right. rising real estate prices means h- higher land values. And the government, which uh, local governments all around the country, when they need to fund their budget, they, the, the most popular way to do that is to sell land. And uh, th- th- land prices have been going up. That means revenue has been increasing. They're selling even more land. This is also, of course, a problem for the government. Uh, this rush to sell land, but it's also in the short term a solution to funding problems. So that's one reason why it's important for them, why rising prices has been beneficial to them. Right. Uh, another thing is the psychology of the economy. So right, the more prices are going up, there's more of a feeling of confidence in the Chinese economy. There's a psychological kind of knock-on effect also in the stock market. And anytime prices start dipping, uh, you see the reverse psychological effect. You see the stock market go down. You see people being a little bit worried about the economy at large. Even if the connection between the real estate economy and the economy at large is not necessarily, you know, as lockstep as that. And what's the danger then? If we, uh, if if there is obviously a, a problem if they continue to allow, allow prices to rise as they have at eleven point seven percent in one month. Right. The danger is definitely that average people are no longer able to afford homes in the middle of, of big cities uh, or even maybe on the outskirts of big cities these days. Uh, they feel like a, a reasonable apartment is out of reach uh, for your average you know, middle class uh, consumer. Yet they need to get one to, to get married, uh, to have any sort of uh, status. Yeah, it's a sine qua non now for the, the marrying guy, right? Uh, right? You need to own a car and own a home. Of course, I had neither when I, I – I, uh, proposed to my wife. I had what was called a naked marriage. Please never give us an image of your naked marriage. (laughs) (laughs) I'll try not to. I don't know. I'm kind of enjoying it. And of course, then the other side of that is if they bring, if they do anything that brings prices down uh, too quickly or brings up, brings about a a crash in the real estate market, that could have uh, not only a psychological knock-on effect, but a real um, knock-on effect on the economy, depending on how bad it is. Well, an advisor to the People's Bank of China was, was on Bloomberg earlier this week, and he said exactly that. He said this, this round of tightening property measures, you know, we, we, we don't expect it to drop prices more than 10%, because if they drop more than 10%, we'll have a whole set of other social stability issues. Well, let's talk about those regulations. Bill, actually, you've been writing quite a bit about this. Uh, there have been a spate of new regulations, actually, that are aimed at taking some of the air out of what looks increasingly like a bubble. What are some of the steps that the government's taking in an effort to keep a, a lid on these rising prices? Well, well first, to give some, some framework for it, I mean, the, the, the real estate market in China is not a market economy. Um, remember, it's not a market economy in the U.S. either. Look at Fannie Freddie. Look at the Fed buying a trillion plus in mortgage-backed securities in the last year. So housing is generally not something that works at a free market. And most governments, it has a whole set of other public goods and social welfare issues. So one, when you, when you look at how China approaches the housing market and these controls, they used what Westerners consider to be sort of bad economic or non-economic measures. Instead of raising interest rates, they limit the number of houses you can buy, they limit the number of uh, mortgages you can take out, they have rules around people, you have to be a resident of a city to buy an apartment in that city, uh, then they also raised uh, the down payment required. Let's, uh, let's drill down a little bit about it. So specifically, I mean, last week we had this new document number 10 mm-hmm. issued by the state council. What specifically did that say? Uh, that limited, it, it, it was an interesting document because it was, it, it, it said in cities where prices are too high and have risen too fast, they should the, the local government should start limiting 
uh, mortgages on third or more ha- properties. They should raise down payments. Uh, they down don't... payments, we should add, I mean, for people who don't live in China, they're at 30% right you know, now. You know, down payments, there, there is no subprime market in the sense that you can go in and get, like, buy a house with 5% down. You can't get an like loan in China? I'm no. scandalized. Um, <laughs> you can, but it's gotten much harder. Um, so, so this idea that, you know, all these, are, all these loans are going to go bad, I think there's a, it's, the prices have to drop. 30, 40, 50 percent before you see people being underwater on their mortgages. Right. Uh, there's a little bit of squishiness that it sounds like in the language there. In, in cities where property prices are rising too fast, what does that actually mean? That's an interesting – I think it's the central government is putting out this directive and laying a policy framework about how they want to control housing, but they're leaving some wiggle room for the local governments – for and for what reason? One reason is what Gotti was talking about, which is it's the local governments are in a real bind because they are so heavily reliant on the the revenue from land sales that to immediately shut that off would cause them a lot of problem. Is this just going to create some giant nationwide arbitrage opportunity, or people are just going to go to where the terms are the easiest? Actually, they're already doing that. Well, right? developers are doing that. Individuals maybe in small numbers, but most people can only afford one house. And you have to remember, exactly. I mean, you know, this is immobile, right? This is real estate. Right. This isn't stuff that you can take with you and, and, and go back to the city that you live in. I mean, people who live in Beijing are not necessarily going to want to no, buy property. No, but if it does become a speculative mania, people become a lot freer about how and why they do this. If, right. it, if it does, of course, it if is it already when it is. Mania. Let me rephrase my <laughs> When it is a speculative mania, right. uh, the approaches to this stop being quite so rational. Perhaps. Of course, we've seen, been seeing investors buy apartments that they leave empty actually for years in China mm-hmm. now. And it's, uh, it's, it's been going on and it's gone through a, a number of different uh, steps of the government saying, oh, go, the market's overheating. Let's bring in right. these tougher measures. Then they get pulled back if they seem like they're too effective. This has been a back and forth now, I think, since at least like 2004. Oh, or, or, or even 2004. earlier. I mean, 2008. Yeah. They, they, you can go back to Zhu Lunzi's time. Right. Actually. But before, right. Right before the, the financial crash in 2008, they the government rolled out a whole bunch of measures to cool off the market. They dropped prices in some places 30%. But then as soon as the crash hit, and starting around, um, I think last year, the bottom of the market, at least in Beijing, was right around Chinese New Year in February. Yeah, right February around then, they, they started just pumping money into the market through the easy credit, and then they started pulling back on, you know, you've got a discounts on your mortgage interest rate if it was your first place, and all sorts of administrative rules to to provide a fill to the housing market. And it, it basically turbocharged the market over the last, over the last year. And allowed a couple of very uh, struggling developers uh, to IPO. And, right. Uh, get some money out of some right. what I would think are pretty stupid investors. <laughs> um, so, so now the government's come back in with this whole new round of, they haven't raised interest rates officially. They've started raising rates on the mortgage loans themselves so that banks no longer can give. So some places you, so you would get a sort of a 70% discount on the baseline rate if you were your first time buying. Um, they're, they're getting rid of all those policies. Today, the Beijing papers, they, they're saying they're probably going to limit the actual amount of houses an individual can, or household can buy in Beijing, mortgage or not. I've also seen some proposed regulations that suggest developers are not going to be able to uh, sell any property that hasn't actually been completed yet. I think most people in Beijing who buy a, a new place buy it well before, I mean, maybe sometimes even when, just when ground's been broken. Well, the rule has been for a while now that you, the developers couldn't sell until they had actually put the roof on the building. Right. So it now, wasn't now fully completed, but it right. was the roof was on it. And so the way the developers got around it was you could buy a VIP card, you could pay 50,000 RMB to get a, a special number which was effectively just a pre-deposit. And so when they could officially sell it, your whatever you paid for a VIP card counts or your special club counts against your down payment. 
one of the new regulations that came out. I mean, the Chinese government knows all the tricks the developers play. They have a very specific set of regulations to go after all these, I think it was like eight or ten different things. Now, of course, there are probably ten other ones they haven't thought of. But, but it's making, they're putting the squeeze on the developers as well as they're, putting the, they're trying to put the squeeze on the speculators who are buying the properties. I mean, it's a much, much deeper issue than just these administrative measures. I mean, you've got the latest issue of Taishin has a very good editorial from Hu Shuli about how the, the, the fundamental cause is the real, just the imbalance in the economy and how it's not a market economy, and yet parts of it have been treated like a market economy. And the only way to really deal with the real estate issue is to have a much broader set of reforms. Mm. Now, that's going to take years. So in the meantime, the government has to come in with very effective administrative measures, which have taken the market by surprise. And, and most analysts, or almost all of them, would tell you that these were much more targeted and much harsher than anyone was expecting. So what has more the, to come. Yeah, what has the impact been on developers, actually? I mean, what's well, happening with the Well, developer stocks have gotten hit. The, market, right. the stock market went down, was it 5% on the Monday after this document number 10 came out? And they kept, they kept going down. And some of the yeah. biggest uh, state-owned developers went down more than 5% on that first day. Well, give us a sense. I mean, for people who are not in China right now and don't live in one of the major Chinese cities where this is just everywhere, uh, give us a sense of just how crazed real estate is right now. I know that I, when I uh, stop at an intersection, I am immediately surrounded by, by these sort of shabbily dressed men from the provinces waving brochures at me. People think it's a roaring fratherama. In, in my own development, if you look at the stores that open in the basement levels, a shocking number of them in the last year have turned into property offices, not to mention the guys standing on the corner. Right. The spam I get to my mobile phone in the last year, the consistency of the spam has changed. It has changed from mostly fa piao. Fa piao you know, are, are illegal – well, sort right. of false receipts. Right. That it's, it changed mostly from black market receipts to property ads. Uh, it has become the widespread topic of discussion. We were talking about this before. This has been the lead in, in the foreign journalism articles about the market here is how you know unlikely people are talking about the property market. But you kind of led with that as well today. So it's become this all-consuming thing. And to me as an observer, it strikes me as deeply pathological and deeply worrying. I, I have dark and gloomy memories of 1997 and living in Southeast Asia. Right. You were there. You were living in Singapore during yeah, that Yeah. When the bottom dropped right out and, you know, it, it recovered from that. So did Hong Kong, which had a rough time and, and Thailand. Uh, you know, all of Southeast Asia was, was really hit then. And people got hurt really badly. And, and there were two or three years of pain coming out of that. So we were talking before, China is not the same as Southeast Asia. They're all managed real estate. They're all managed property markets. They're all basically quasi-socialized property markets. Sure. But the change in tone over the last year has been pretty shocking. And the degree to which it's infected public consciousness has been pretty shocking. And these are the kind of things that make me really wonder what comes next. If it's true what we were talking about before, that the government is walking this path between wanting the market to continue growing but not growing so fast that it has social un unrest and not you know cooling it off sometimes but not cooling it off so much that it has social unrest. They have a lot of tools here for managing the market, but it could be pretty ugly either way if it's they very, lose control of this thing. It's a what very are, difficult the, balance. One of the tools they've been talking about an awful lot but actually have not done nothing on yet is a property tax. What's the state of discussion right now around the introduction of property taxes in China? Well, <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, the next round of these administrative measures are actually, and it's, it's a set of measures China has used before, are around taxes, but they're not actually around an annual U.S. or Hong Kong-style property tax. They're more around transaction taxes. 
So you pay more when you sell your place. You pay more capital. You pay stamp tax, stamp tax, transaction tax, maybe even a capital gains tax, which they don't really have here. Um, and and one of the things that really drove the market last year was they previously you had to hold the property for five years, That's or else right. you're going to be subject to I think it was forget the number I think it was pretty handsome. It's pretty. Right. It was a big amount. And then they said, oh, now it's five, and now it's two years. So all of a sudden, the speculators could come in. So expect most people expect that those those sets of taxes will come back in and probably be more onerous and probably be more progressive in terms of the bigger your your property is, as well as the, the more more units you own. Technically, to have a property tax, you have to have the people the the National People's Congress pass it as a new law. Um, there is a tax on the books for commercial properties, um, and there's some talk that they can actually just modify that without going through the MPC and then introduce a property tax, an annual. Uh, percentage property tax based on the value of your property. There are a whole bunch of problems with that. Uh, there's you have you don't have the infrastructure for property assessment. Uh, it's not like the U.S. where I mean, how does the, who gets the money? Does it go to the municipal people? Does it go to the to your county? Does it go to your schools? How does the money get paid out? The government has been running these trials, these sort of virtual trials in several cities where they claim they've worked out some of these issues, but nobody's willing to give a timeline. And, and one of the issues, too, that is you got a real problem around corruption because there are a lot of people who have apartments that shouldn't have apartments and can't afford apartments, and there are people who, who have some say in how these laws get passed. Right. I think and, I, it was and, interesting. And if, you posted the these, other day. Right? And, if, and if, if, if all of a sudden they have to pay taxes on these properties, either it's going to cause them problems to disclose it or – where are they going to get the money to spend the fifty, hundred thousand, two hundred thousand RMB a year in, in tax? And and the last point I'll make is also this idea that a property tax that was going to burst the bubble. What is that based on in terms of logic? Because the U.S. has had a property tax for decades, and we just had the, one of the like biggest housing bubbles right. in history. Right. Let's talk about that a li- actually a little bit. Um, there, there are two more topics that I want to talk, touch on. Uh, Gotti, first I want to ask you a little bit about commercial property here. We've been talking primarily about about residential, I think it's fair to, to draw a pretty clear distinction. I, I walk around Beijing and I see pretty high vacancy rates right now. I'm sure that's the same in a lot of other cities. Right. Back when I wrote uh, my last uh, There's a Housing Bubble story in 2008. You've written a few. <laughs> I've written a couple over Hanging the years. that drum again, are you? Uh, this one was actually about the, the kind of crash that did happen, but it was sort of just a short-term one, the one that Bill just mentioned. Only part uh, of the sky. Um, right, right around when the financial crisis took place. I wrote right before that, uh, right around the Olympics in Beijing, uh, I wrote about uh, the problems in the housing market and in commercial real estate. And uh, a guy by the name of Jack Rodman, who's uh, of counsel at King & Wood here, and uh, is a sort of longtime distressed assets guy in Asia. Uh, his business is, you know, properties in trouble or assets in trouble. He took me around... Uh, Beijing on a tour of empty Class A office space. Class A is the top grade of right. office space, and and there was just, uh, I mean, just oceans of it, uh, tons of buildings that we were looking at that didn't even have one uh, floor leased. Uh, some of them brand new, um, some of them a couple of years old. Uh, they were aligning uh, Beijing's major thoroughfares: the Second Ring Road, the Third Ring Road, um, you know, other east-west axes. Uh, they were, um, it, it, and it was the question behind it is always, uh, well, what about the bank loans that funded these buildings? Who, who's, who's owning these buildings? You know, what, what was their financial situation? Some of them have been bought by uh, state-owned insurers, airlines. How's Not, Jack Robbins' business doing now? <laughs> <laughs> well, he, what he does is he's of course advising people who might want to come into this market or who want, might want to get money out of this market. Uh, but uh, at that time, it, was, it looked clear to me that uh, you know Beijing and more property was coming online. Mm-hmm. That you have a real problem in the commercial real estate market, and lease, leasing rates were so low that none of these properties were economical at that time, and they aren't now. 
And then you also have in other cities like uh, Tianjin, uh, you know, not far from Beijing, you have huge amounts of office space coming online without the major tenants that you normally expect. I mean, you have in Beijing at least you have all the you know major multinationals or you know big financial service companies uh, need to have office space. Uh, law firms. Uh, there's less clear demand for that in some in of the second tier cities. Second tier cities. Yeah, I mean, let's not forget there are what 163 cities in China yeah. with populations I mean, the, over a million. The commercial real estate won a lot of these buildings, as you know, because you've talked to Jiangxi and the Soho people. Is the developers actually to sell off individual units, and so that a lot of the developers have no risk left in these projects. Well, Soho Soho is one example of that. Uh, what's called a strata developer of, uh, office space. They are doing okay because they sell off by floors. These other buildings that I'm talking about were, are not uh, developed on that basis. Okay. Um, uh, and then we um, uh, spent a, a big chunk of December and January looking for retail space in Beijing CBD and probably looked at every retail space within a 10 to 15-minute walk of, of China World. We being you and Carol. Uh, yes, um, for, for her business. And it, uh, it is terrifying. The office spaces at like Chawai Soho and Soho Chang, uh, they're actually full. Or close to full, but the retail mm-hmm. is a wasteland. It's like a neutron bomb went off in these places, and there, there's. You mean the retail or the office? The retail. The retail, okay. the the retail is just it's just a ghost town. And what was interesting though, as we looked at the, a lot of these properties, was in many of these places there wasn't movement on the rent. The rents were way out of whack, and the answer was, well, these guys don't care. They pay in cash. They live in Shanxi. They live in Inner Mongolia. They could care less. There's another reason that rents haven't uh, gone down officially, which is uh, none of these guys who own these buildings. Uh, want to mark to market, uh, you know, the, val- the value of the building would go down if they're leasing uh, their floors right. at much lower rates than they claim they, they can right. lease. Oh, so they could be like U.S. banks and mark to fantasy. Right. <laughs> right. Well, that's Perfect. what they do. That's <laughs> learning, that, that, from, uh, learning from the, the great capitalist nation of the world, right? It's interesting because that's a variation of the same thing we, we've seen with residential property a lot, too. People will buy it. They won't bother to rent it. They certainly won't bother to rent it if they can't get a price that meets whatever they think they should be getting for mm-hmm. it. Properties will sit open as long as people feel they can get the, the investment value out of it. But, mm-hmm. but to your question, I mean, is it a bubble? I think the answer is depends, right? I mean, China is a big country. There are a lot of cities. Not every city is a bubble. Some places, Hainan province, Hainan Island is absolutely a bubble. <laughs> uh, residential versus commercial is very different. Like Audrey was just saying, I mean, the commercial is a real problem in a lot of cities. Residential, it depends on the city. It depends on the area. Some parts some parts of China, the residential is not at all in a bubble. And I mean, people underestimate, I think, especially the, some of the Western China bears, they it's funny because on the one hand, they mock China for having crappy official and false official st- statistics. On the other hand, they use those statistics to justify why China's real estate is overvalued. <laughs> and I mean, one thing in Beijing, for example, which is a market that we all know a lot about, the, the whatever numbers you use for the income, like what the average Beijing's income is, way understates what people's of course, real income is. Yeah, in the, there's, is a the city. Gray, gray, there's a whole gray, lot of gray income, right. and a market like Beijing is a national market. And so the so actual affordability ratio is, is much more right. favorable than I think a lot of the people would say. But I think you do see the speculative buy and flip mentality that has been at the core of any sort of uh, bust in a market. Uh, you know, I think, and you could have that problem here, certainly. Right. I mean, we just saw this story by David Pearson in the Los Angeles Times about Hefei. Uh, which is an uh, Anhui province. The capital of Anhui. Yeah. And, uh, it's an, not a backwater. Not a, right, well, no, but, but, but you don't walk important. down. The, the, if you walk down the street in Beijing, you, you don't hear a lot of people saying, you know, I just got to get me to, to, to Hefei. I mean. Yeah. Well, I think, I think what we're seeing, though, is, is the popularity of the, the Waju's the soap opera, right, mm-hmm. about how unaffordable housing is Shanghai. You know, this has clearly become a social stability issue for the government. And the government 
does lots of, you know, they pay very pay a lot of attention to what people think here. And I think if you look at the root cause of, of you know, clashes in the provinces, if you look at the root cause, even in outside of Beijing. Many the, of them have to do with Most of them have to do with something real estate related, corrupt hmm. officials, corrupt real estate developers, relocation, not getting paid, getting forced off their land. Then you have the middle class who increasingly can't afford these properties. And so from the perspective of the party and keeping power, this is probably one of their top, if not the top issue in terms of social stability. Will, Will, how do you how do you rate the government's ability to communicate around this issue? A lot of the measures that have been taken in the last few months are designed, I mean, they're designed to be effective regulations, or I think the government hopes that there'll be effective regulations, but there is definitely a communications component there. We are doing something. We are trying to handle the market. We're working to control this. Um, well, they're trying to speak to two constituencies. They're the haven't bought yet constituencies and this I already own property. Well, the question is which constituency are you more worried about at any given time? And as time goes by, the constituency to be more worried about is going to be the have not constituency. And not, that's not necessarily though, because because a lot of the have bought are people who, who actually decide these policies. So so if you drive the price out too much, you're hurting yourself. This is why we call it a dilemma. Yeah. But, also, but, also but, some but, of the have-bots have a lot to lose. Who, not people who aren't helping make policy, but they're middle-class homeowners mm-hmm. who uh, have a lot to lose if prices go down, and they could end up being a very unhappy constituency. But the, but the question is going to be where does the risk come from in the future? It is, is the biggest risk going to come from the people who are already owners, or is the biggest risk going to come from people who start to feel disenfranchised? Uh, that is a tough balance to strike. Maybe both. Maybe both. And that's where, you know, it would be not a great job to be trying to manage this in China because it's a really, really complex problem. Then their big challenge is going to be landing this baby smoothly. And the interesting thing is I think we could have – we can all agree that we could have had this exact same discussion with all the same elements three years ago. Well, we'll have it again next year. And the question is will we have – will we still be having this discussion three years from now? Well, three years ago, we didn't have – we wouldn't have been able to ask this one question, which is uh, how does this compare to the United States? You know, China, there's a lot less leverage in the system. Is that that not unfair? Well, there's a lot less consumer leverage. Yes. In other words, the creative financing in China is more by the government (laughs) than it is by uh, individuals. And so you don't have uh, nearly the kind of 100 percent mortgages or 90 percent mortgages. Technically not legal here. I'm sure some people manage to basically borrow everything to buy their house. Uh, but it's not nearly on the scale it was in the U.S. as prices were going up. Sure, no second and, and, and third mortgages. And you have the government. And... I mean, you know, the government is very good at learning here. You know, they, it takes them a while sometimes. But I think they've been very clear about some of the lessons of the crash in the U.S. And one of them was this this laissez-faire approach to an out-of-control housing market and, and to not trying to manage asset bubbles. And so I think what you're seeing is the government taking a very muscular approach to try and, and try and push this asset bubble down without actually crashing it. I mean, because, because if you had to crudely draw a comparison to what year we are in here in China, uh, in U.S. terms, are we in 2006? Are we in 2007? Well, I think I think we're way way earlier than the, because you know you got to remember most people in China are still pretty poor, right. and in the U.S. a lot of this was building these big mansions that nobody needed. The, the Western bears like these these guys who are short China or short parts of China. To Chanos's credit, he's not actually short China. He's short specific things right, that make, actually make a lot of sense. These guys wouldn't last a night in your average Beijingers' house. You might argue we're in the roaring 20s, I mean, in the U.S. You have still a lot of poor people in the countryside, but you have a whole, you know, uh, generation of new wealth uh, in the cities. Right. But we already uh, have the stock market. I mean, you got to remember the stock market crashed in 2006. 
right? It hit over 6,000, and right. right now it's at 2,900. One of the biggest differences is that, well, Beijing is on it. They're aware of the extent of the problem. They're aware of it, uh, whereas... Washington was very much, or New York was very much caught with its pants. But we've been talking about the difficulty of managing the particular dilemma in the market here. So it's one thing to be aware that you have a problem. It's another to have a solution for managing but, it in the long term. Remember, I mean, in the, after the financial crash, prices in parts of Beijing or other cities went down 30%, 30%. In the U.S., that was the magnitude of the, the crash for a lot of places. Right. And look at the damages caused. What did that 20 30% drop in the, over the space of a few months in Beijing at the end of 2008, what did that do? Right. It seems to have a more isolated impact yeah, and a much larger – it, it did not take down the economy. Right. No, but each iteration of this situation – sorry, I'm the bear by inclination, I guess. The next time it happens, it may play out differently than it did last yeah. time, and that's the danger. I, I agree with that, and I, I would put myself in that bear camp. I'd just be careful about trying to predict when crisis is going to hit, if and, there, when there is one. And, and, I don't have the stones for that. That's but, for sure. But, but also, I mean, I think you have to look at what the government cares about. I think the government cares much more about – protecting the residential market and making sure it doesn't crash, then they may care about the, the commercial market. They've cleaned up the banks before. I mean, let's face it. It's a tax on the economy if they have to deal with a bunch of bad assets on the banks. But they still control the banks. They'll still clean them up, right? And they can still do whatever accounting they need to do, like Wall Street does now with Mark II model, Mark II fantasy, whatever you call it, right? <laughs> so, I mean, we live in a Mark II unmarket world. Basically, look at, look at Europe. Look at Greece, right? Where in the world is people, do people mark stuff to market right now? I wonder what stage you think we're in now, whether you think we're at the stage where people are thinking, the, the average person on the street is thinking, I still want to get in on this craze, or are they now sort of afraid? My, my, I think there's a lot of trepidation right my, now. My friends, we think maybe 20% drop in Beijing, and we're definitely buyers of, but they also feel that they can be more selective in where they buy. Part of the problem is it's, it's basically people have been buying anything. Right. And, and they haven't really been very disturbing about quality. I think one of the things that's come out of this is there's going to be some separation between better locations versus places out in the suburbs. And that, that has this sort of mania. Has, and has, I, th has I think that attitude us. is so sensitive to government policy mm -hmm. and, message, and signaling. Well, the government, I mean, the, 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 the propaganda push has been astounding. If you read the papers since they wrote the document, it's just every day there's articles about how they're cracking down on developers, they're cracking down on speculators, they're cracking down on multiple properties. Um, the one thing I'll say from, I know last week you guys talked about the, the, the Huyabang piece by Wen Jiaobao. I actually think that, that that essay is related to these property measures. And I, I think what we're seeing is a shift where the government realizes that they've let the real estate market get out of control. It's the biggest source of social instability in the country. And you're going to see much stronger policies that this time the government, I think, believes they have to make them stick or they're going to be... I don't disagree at all. I think, I mean, if, if you had to sort of draw lines between the factions in, within the leadership in China and the constituencies that they're trying to address, clearly the, the Communist Youth League faction is more concerned right. with people who haven't bought yet, with the ant tribes. Back to the property tax question. The most aggressive property tax proposal is in Chongqing, run by yeah. everyone's favorite Prince populist, Bo Xilai, where it is incredibly progressive. If you own multiple properties, if you own a bigger property than, you know, like 130 meters, uh, you get taxed extremely heavily. The bigger transaction tax, very much a very, very populist very socialist yeah. proposal that may or may not get, like, get passed, but it's clear that they've staked out the position of where they think the well, market should be. Well, if populists are ascendant, then that's just very smart politics by Bo Xilai, <laughs> once again. That may also be, that may be a populist policy, or that may be actually reflecting also where he thinks policies out of Beijing are going to go, too. Because you got to remember, we have a new, new leadership comes in two years. This is a very sensitive time. People are most likely, I think the risk here for the property developers is that the government and the 
people decide that they're going to overcompensate because they think that Beijing is serious. And so you might see a much harsher crackdown on property than people expected. Guys, that's about all we have time for today. I want to thank you guys all for joining me, Bill, Dottie, Will. And uh, thank you for listening to the Seneca Podcast. We'll see you again next week. Thanks again to Dave Lancashire and everyone at Pop-Up Chinese for hosting this podcast and for letting us use their fine studio. See you next week. Thank you.